Tonight we're going to have the third portion of our homily series on the Mass, where we look a little bit more closely at what it is that we do when we gather to worship. Just to recap briefly, we began the first weekend of this speaking about what liturgy is in general, that it is a work, and that particularly what we do here is the work of God. And every time that the liturgy is celebrated, the work of our redemption is accomplished. And that was foreshadowed in the great Passover event when the Lord led the, the, the Israelites out of Egypt into freedom and fulfilled through Jesus Christ. And in both times, in the Passover event and then when Jesus institutes the new covenant, which we'll go into a little bit tonight, he unites that work, that saving, redeeming work to a liturgy and commands us to celebrate the liturgy. And every time we do, we participate in that work of redemption and the grace of it is poured out upon us. It's appropriated to us. Last week, we talked a little bit about the introductory rites, the liturgy of the word, where we process in, recalling when Moses would possess to the tabernacle right, in the old covenant and all would stand recognizing that he's about to go to meet God and we're, he's going to come back and tell us what the Lord said. And then we talked about repenting, recognize we're moving into the presence of God, the all-holy one, and the need for mercy so that our hearts can be open to receive what he wants to say to us. Of course, the liturgy of the word following upon that. That every time the scriptures are proclaimed in church, God himself speaks to his people. And so our active participation in those things, of calling to mind our sins, of repenting, right, of anticipating, in a certain sense, being excited right, about going to meet the Lord and then, and then listening attentively to every word so that our hearts even begin to burn in us just as the disciples on the road to Emmaus experience. It should lead us into this next portion of the Mass, right, the climax, so to speak. The liturgy of the Eucharist. Just as we begin the Mass with a procession, the liturgy of the Eucharist also right, is marked by a procession, except this time everyone's not standing. We all sit. And the gifts are processed forward, the gifts of bread and wine. And when I was a kid, I don't know how old I was, but, but at some point we got a little, little upgrade to the church we were in, and they put bathrooms in it. And up until that point in my life, I didn't know that churches could have bathrooms. Um, well, anyway, so the new thing became the bathrooms. And so every time we would sit down for the basket to be passed, everybody would get up to go to the bathroom. So you just kind of naturally figure, oh, this must just be like a break, right? It's like halftime. Everybody gets up and goes to the bathroom to get something to drink before they come back for the second half. Right? That's not what's going on there. And even though we're sitting, we're still supposed to be actively engaged because that procession is not simply just bread and wine that's coming to the altar. Every one of us is to bring something. Right, shortly after that, when you stand, the priest says, pray, brothers and sisters, that my sacrifice and yours may be acceptable to God, the Almighty Father. My sacrifice and yours. So everybody is supposed to sacrifice something. We got places to sit down. I'm sorry, I just broke my train of thought. But if y'all stand it up, we got plenty of spots 
up here if y'all would like to come. Don't be embarrassed or ashamed. Okay. So we're, we're all supposed to offer something. All supposed to offer something. And most especially ourselves. All of the sacrifices in the Old Covenant, when you talk about sacrificing lambs and pigeons and doves and all this, we're, we're supposed to be representative of a self-offering. Making a gift of themselves to the Lord. And so, so that same reality is present here at the Mass, that we are all supposed to make a gift of ourselves. And so at the very least, when the bread and wine are coming forward, the way that I actively participate and engage that portion of the Mass is to, to make a gift of myself and to say to the Lord in my heart, Lord, I offer my entire self there. I place it there with the bread and wine. And we can be more specific than that. If there's something specific that's weighing on my heart, a particular cross I'm carrying, Lord, I place that there on the altar. There's folks that, that have asked me to pray for them. Well, I know they need prayers. Like the folks that are in Florida, for example. Place them on the altar. All the work that I've done this week, all my studies, Lord, I place that on the altar. My joys, my sorrows, my desires, everything, I make a complete gift of myself to the Lord. So that as the Mass progresses, just as the bread and wine are transformed, so everything that I offer gets transformed too and gets presented to the Father as the perfect offering by Jesus. But before we get to that, that perfect offering, right, we still move a little bit. One of the, the prayers that that most of us are, are used to singing, and we don't think about it too much, right, is the, the holy, 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 Lord God of hosts. Heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. Why do we do that? Why do we sing that song week after week after week after week? It appears twice in the Bible. Once in Isaiah chapter 6 when he's He's given a vision of heaven and he sees the heavenly throne room and the seraphim, the highest choir of angels, prostrate before the throne of God singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. And the other time is in the book of Revelation when the same thing happens to St. John. He's given a revelation of heaven. He's able to see what's going on in heaven. And he sees not just the angels, but he sees... He sees the elders, what he calls the saints, those who have, who have died because of Jesus Christ, falling down, falling down on their faces and singing, holy, holy, holy. And so for us, when we sing that, those scriptural references should key us into what's actually happening. It's not our song that we sing. It's the song of the angels that they sing constantly before the throne of God. And we're drawn up into that. Mystically. Heaven and earth are united. And we sing the praise that the angels sing to God. We join with them. And just as, as John saw right, all the saints fall prostrate, and he himself went prostrate, so too, after we're done singing that, we, we kneel. 
recognizing that we, we have moved beyond time. We're not simply here in the Church of Christ the King on LSU's campus. We have entered heaven, mystically. And we're before the throne of Almighty God, surrounded by all the angels and all the saints. And we're preparing to make this gift of ourselves, to approach the Lord. But we never approach Him alone. We always go with and through Jesus. And so that's the next step. Just after that, we kneel down. The The first prayer that the priest begins to pray. It's called the epiclesis. And tonight we'll hear it, we'll use Eucharistic prayer too because it has a special kind of clarity with the wording of it. We invoke the Holy Spirit upon the bread and wine as a preparation for them to receive the words of consecration so that then they become the body and blood, soul and divinity of Jesus. And the words that we'll use tonight Lord, send down your spirit like the dewfall upon them. Like the dewfall. It's kind of a weird place to start talking about the dew. But again, that, the, that that is something that's rooted in Scripture. Then when the work of redemption for the Israelites had taken place, the Lord delivered them, led them into the desert on the way to the promised land. He fed them with manna from heaven, with miraculous bread that appeared every time the dew evaporated. And so we use the the very same imagery because that, that was just a sign, a foreshadowing of the greater reality to come. That now we call down the Holy Spirit like the dewfall on the bread and wine, on everything that we have offered in union with that. Not so that it becomes just miraculous bread that's going to fill my stomach, but so that it becomes now the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ under the appearance of bread and wine. That is going to fill my soul. Jesus himself, when instituting that, instituting the new covenant, was celebrating The Passover, we talked about this last week. He was celebrating the Passover. And he was being obedient to the liturgy that had been ascribed to him. Yet, we hear nothing of of a lamb, the Passover lamb that was necessary, absolutely necessary, was integral to the celebration of the Feast of Passover and to this recalling, this remembering. And that's because Jesus stood in the place of the Lamb. He Himself united His sacrifice, the sacrifice of the Lamb, the pouring out of the blood of the Lamb, that was going to to mark the homes of the Israelites to protect them from the angel of death. He unites that sacrifice to this liturgy of taking the bread, of giving thanks, and then of consuming it. And the same thing with the wine. Except he says, now this is my body, this is my blood. 
He's the Passover lamb. The disciples probably would not have understood right away what he was doing. But then as we hear in Scripture, it was, it was often after the fact when something happened. Then they remembered the word that he had spoken to them. And he recognized how he was fulfilling everything. That early on in Jesus' public ministry, John the Baptist was the one who pointed him out and said, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John was prophesying. There, this, is, this is the new Passover Lamb. And it's the only one that matters from here on out. Because Jesus transcends time. So far as He's God. We are all made present to that one sacrifice of the Passover Lamb. The new Passover Lamb, Jesus Christ. Every time we celebrate the liturgy of the Eucharist. We recognize, too, again, that it's not simply a fulfillment of the Old Covenant. But it's, it's a foretaste of heaven. It is a foretaste of heaven. In John's revelation, right, when he was standing in heaven, he said he saw a lamb. It looked like it had been slain, but it was alive. And everyone was worshiping. And the angel tells him, write this, write this down. Blessed are those who are called to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Blessed are those who are called to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And so we unite that with the words of John the Baptist after the consecration before we receive Holy Communion. Behold the Lamb of God. Behold Him who takes away the sins of the world. Blessed are those that are called to the supper of the Lamb. There's a wedding supper. A wedding banquet. And the bride is us. The bride is the church. As the angels are singing hallelujah as the Lamb comes forth. It says, Behold, the wedding feast of the Lamb has begun and His bride is prepared to welcome Him. That should be our disposition at that point. That we are entering into the wedding feast of the Lamb mystically. And the bride, us, are prepared to welcome Him and to receive Him. Tonight we're going to do something a little, a little new. Um, we've got a veil over the chalice and the pattern that you'll see. And it's, it's something that's, that's not mandatory, right? But it's, it's something that's part of the church's tradition. And it's, it's another thing that, that helps us to visually right, key in to what's going on. Because we veil that which is sacred. And when we think of a veil, most often we think of a bride being veiled, right? And so just as in the liturgy of the Word, the Lord speaks to us to set our hearts afire if we are open to listen, to lead us in to the liturgy of the Eucharist, He is the bridegroom. He's wooing His bride, preparing us that we may hunger, that we may thirst for Him. And as the liturgy of the Eucharist begins, we unveil to mark the beginning of the wedding supper of the land that we are mystically entering into. And the fruit of that celebration is eternal life. 
the consummation of the marriage is when Jesus gives himself fully, his body, his blood, his soul and divinity to his bride, the church. And that's what happens when we receive him in Holy Communion. It's consummated. It's a one flesh union. Jesus comes to be one with me. And I one with him. So my brothers and sisters, as we prepare to move into the liturgy of the Eucharist, we pray to have attentive hearts and minds to the mysteries that are taking place to you. Pray to have the gift of recollection so I can, can make an offering of myself and, and those things that I hold in my heart right now to the Lord. And that I may stir up faith. And stir up faith, especially at that moment where we say, Lord, I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof, but only say the word, and my soul shall be healed. The words of the centurion to which Jesus responded, not even in Israel have I seen such faith as this. That we may have that faith in our hearts as we prepare to come forward. And Lord, you can do whatever you want. You can free me from slavery to this particular sin. You can reconcile my family. You can give me strength to walk with this cross. You can do everything you want. We may stir up that faith so that when he comes to give himself to us, to consummate the wedding supper of the Lamb, he finds us fully open the virtue of that faith and the love that we have for him, so that he may do as he so desires.